Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, we had another great conversation today. This was actually part one of a two-part podcast series. Yeah, so we wanted to explore the topic of short corn or short stature corn you may see. So today we talked to Kelly Gillespie, who is the Research and Development Crop Efficiency Portfolio Manager for Bear Crop Science. And in her role, she's really looking at new technologies that are coming down the road and how they can benefit farmers and the environment. Yeah, so Jason and I thought it would be very interesting to break this up into a two-part series centered around short corn. So our first episode is with Kelly, who's going to talk about some of the technology benefits uh, that are associated with short corn. And then our next episode, which comes out in two weeks, be sure to hit that subscribe button. We talked to Bernardo, who's a farmer in Mexico, who's actively growing short corn. So we can hear from his personal experience. Yeah, the cool thing is that this product is coming in the United States. It's a couple years away from a limited launch, but it's already been launched for several years in Mexico under the trade name Vitala. And so we talked to Bernardo about his experiences actually growing and his hands-on uh, experience with this product. So without further ado, let's get right into the conversation with Kelly. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. To kick things off, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? Sure, definitely. So I'm currently the portfolio manager for crop efficiency at Bayer Crop Science. Basically what that means uh, is that anything in our global R&D portfolio related to crop efficiency, so things like improving yield or um, improving nitrogen use efficiency, water use efficiency, um, et cetera, you know, whether it's through breeding, genetic gain, whether it's through biotech, editing, uh, biologics, all of that really good work that our teams are doing across R&D really rolls up into my portfolio to think through, um, you know, strategically, how are we placed, uh, which regions are we launching in, you know, obviously things like short corn, which we're going to talk about here today. How does, how does that all play together in our overall R&D portfolio and how are we advancing things? Um, as far as my background, so, so how did I get here? I'm actually a, an Illinois uh, native. I grew up um, in a suburb outside Chicago, um, Orland Park, for maybe those of you that know the Chicago area. Went to college uh, in Illinois as well in, uh, at Knox College, Go Prairie Fire uh, in Galesburg, Illinois. Had an amazing experience there. Then did my PhD, my graduate work at University of Illinois, Worked with uh, Lisa Ainsworth and, uh, you know, Don Ort, Steve Long, the um, climate change group there, agriculture. Um, You know, I was really focused on how soybean, um, the soybean agroecosystem responds to climate change and some of the mechanisms by which, uh, you know, soybean responds to climate change and how well adapted, you know, will soybean be in the future um, to different weather scenarios, right? After that, actually, I came to St. Louis to do a postdoc, so not directly to Monsanto at that point, but to do a postdoc at the Danforth Center here. Mm -hmm. Um, It was actually a pretty short postdoc, but it was kind of fun. I was working to uh, improve photosynthesis and algae um, for biofuel use. Turns out, at least uh, currently, the economics for uh, algae biofuel use is is a little bit upside down, but it was at least a fun science project and thinking about, uh, you know, how we improve um, algae to maybe be an eventual biofuel feedstock someday. At that point, I, I joined uh, what, you know, Monsanto at the time as a physiologist, so running field trials. One of the things I like to tell you know, maybe graduate students or, or people thinking about a career um, in industry versus academia, 
you know, I thought I was pretty cool in graduate school doing field work, right? Like we had a field and, you know, I wasn't in a growth chamber. We weren't doing work on, you know, Arabidopsis model crops. It was really in a field with real soybeans, you know, and then I get to Monsanto and I, my field is literally the entire Midwest. I mean, I just thought that was so fun that our field of inference and and the type of data and the real world implications of of the kind of research that that I was uh, getting to participate in, um, you know, really was just um, super fun and super inspiring. Over the course of my, I guess, almost 10 years now, career here at Monsanto, now Bayer, um, I've held different leadership roles in biotech and actually breeding, you know, was working to help launch our Marana greenhouse, uh, the seven acre glass house that we have where we now basically design corn genomes, um, helped kick off the, the greenhouse project in Petrolina, Brazil, as well as um, support the greenhouse in Puerto Rico uh, for our soybean and, and cotton pipelines. So yeah, had, had roles, you know, in different parts of the company and or different parts of R&D, as well as, as working with different global colleagues, which has been quite fun. That's a really interesting background, and you bring up some interesting points, and I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned coming to industry from academia, you maybe had a different picture of how things were going to be and ended up there was a lot of resources to do really cool research on a huge scale. And mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, just in the general public out there, there's often a lot of misconceptions about what goes on behind the scenes of a, of a large company like Bayer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've always been pretty motivated from a research perspective. I've always said, you know, like I said, I didn't grow up on a farm or an ag. My family's mostly in the Chicago area, you know, but being able to explain what I do to my mom um, has always been really, you know, really kind of important, you know, and just connecting it to, to real world things and, you know, what concerns people have. If, if we want to have an impact um, as scientists, this is definitely one of the places to be to do it. <laughs> You brought up short corn, and um, we mm-hmm. definitely want to talk about short corn here. And so this is a, a, a fairly new concept. And can you just talk a little bit about what we're talking about and how this idea got started, you know, the time frame of it? Sure, absolutely. Short corn doesn't have a commercial name yet, right? So we're still just calling it um, short corn. And you might think short, you know, might mean puny. It might look like an inbred. Um, you know, you might think it's not a very robust plant. Um, well, dash all of those thoughts, uh, because that is not in, that is not the case at all. Uh, short corn, basically what we've done is we've uh, reduced the length of the inner nodes. So just reduce the, the stalk height. Um, the, it's the exact same number of leaves. Um, the ears are the same size or, you know, depending on the trial, maybe sometimes a little bit bigger. And so, so really all we've done is reduce the height of, of the plant. It's just as uh, robust. It's, it looks just like corn. In fact, if, you, if it wasn't even planted next to tall corn, uh, if you weren't you know, walking through it and getting hit in the face with ears, <laughs> uh, you wouldn't even know that it's, it's short versus tall. So basically the um, leaves are closer together. That's the difference. The leaves are closer together. Yes. Yes. And the stalk is, is, is a little bit more robust and a little bit thicker. So, so you're asking, you know, how, how did we get started with this? You know, why, why short corn? Well, so it turns out corn is really one of the last grasses, one of the last monocots that, that's in production to go through, um, scientifically, it's called a dwarfing event or, or you know, a shortening of the stock. Uh, so rice, wheat, and sorghum have all basically in history. So the Green Revolution with Norman Borlaug and wheat um, have gone through this shortening or this dwarfing event. 
Um, and really that, you know, that's been the inspiration for attempting to shorten corn. Uh, we're, we're not the first ones to think of this, um, sad a little bit, you know, we like to be really innovative, but we are actually the first ones who've achieved it. And so that's, that's pretty exciting. But yeah, the idea of, um, you know, grasses are, are too tall or, you know, they're, they're really too, you know, the stalks are, are, can get sort of willowy if they grow too high, or you can't really increase yield um, beyond a certain threshold without a, a shortening event. You know, that's not a new concept. I love that you mentioned Norman Borlaug, and he was a fascinating person. And we had the honor to talk to his granddaughter uh, a couple episodes oh, back. Cool. So that was really entertaining. And just to learn about him as a person, really, and how, mm-hmm. you know, some of the stories she told, it was very interesting. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I certainly didn't know him, but uh, agreed. Sounds like a really cool guy. <laughs> <laughs> so Kelly, you kind of already touched on this, but for the listeners, maybe the consumers, why why would a farmer, what would the the use case be for the short statured corn over um, a traditional taller corn hybrid? What are some mm-hmm. of the benefits? Yeah, so actually it's a pretty long benefit list. Um, I'll start with the most direct and then um, you know, kind of move into some of the systems benefits or really um, some of the things that we're even beginning to explore and, and want to explore further you know, as growers get their hands on it. Um, so, so we'll start with very direct benefits. Short stature corn, nearly never, you know, never say never, but almost never falls over, almost never green snaps, almost never lodges. And that's, that's huge, you know, really in the Midwest alone, um, you know, different academic studies, different observations have suggested that across all the corn acres in the Midwest, you know, you could see lodging effect, um, you know, anywhere from five to 25% um, of, of corn production, you know, in the U.S. And, and that gets to be a pretty big number. You know, if we have a technology that nearly eliminates, not all the time, um, obviously, because if you have winds, um, you know, if you have a tornado that's knocking over buildings, um, you know, <laughs> a corn plant's not going right. <laughs> to <gonna> withstand that, <laughs> um, you know, but, but basically you get, you get much improved uh, standability. So that's, that's probably the most direct benefit. Then mm-hmm. you can start to get into um, you know, that shorter plant can now be planted at higher populations if that's the goal of the grower or the land can support it, uh, you know, the, the rainfall or the irrigation can support it. And then you can start to get into really managing for high yield. You know, so you think of that, the plant is now short. So a tall boy, a ha- uh, you know, a Hagee sprayer can get over that plant year long. Um, you know, you don't have to rush and get everything on, um, you know, before before the the corn gets too tall, you know, you don't have to be worried as much about flying on applications of different um, management tools. Uh, You can basically put nitrogen on when the the crop needs it. You can put fungicide on when the crop needs it. And so, you know, you start to get into some really exciting systems benefits and systems opportunities to tailor basically year-long management of an acre, how the crop needs it, when the crop needs it. That's a really good summary. It's also interesting when you, uh, under the guise of sustainability, um, mm-hmm. when you factor in the reduction in the amount of farmland available and the increasing, you know, population and trying to produce more and more products on a smaller and smaller footprint. It's mm-hmm. interesting how a technology like this allows us to increase to, the high to do that. Yeah, increase potential. Yield. Yeah, and and what's interesting is while we don't see short corn 
per se increasing yield, right? Right. That every single plant, just because we've shortened the stock, you don't automatically get a bigger ear, right? However, because the short corn stands better, and even if you have maybe 5% lodging or 5% green snap in a field, that starts to add up, right? And so we do actually see, you know, on an aggregate basis, depending on the different environments, we do see higher yield uh, with short stature corn. But again, it's, it's really because, you know, that corn is withstanding the elements, it's withstanding the weather events better than its tall corn counterparts. So do we see any differences in the amount of residue in this crop or is it very similar? It's very similar. So um, as we mentioned, it's, it's really the same number of leaves as tall corn. So that leaf mass, that above ground biomass is about the same. Where we are doing some trials um, and we're just beginning to work with, you know, a couple different equipment manufacturers. I did mention that the stalks are maybe a little bit thicker. So in thinking through that residue management, you know, is the stock going to hang around longer? What does that mean, you know, maybe for tractor maintenance or tire maintenance? Um, you know, those are, are some of the things that, that we're beginning to think through and work through with, with different um, manufacturers. We've talked about a, a lot of benefits. Are there any challenges when developing this product or things that we're working to overcome? Or is it pretty much all just benefits? It's all roses. I mean, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh gosh, no, if, it, if this were easy, it had been done already, right? I kind of like to joke about that with, with some of our, fo- our partners and in in, my partners in R&D is that like the stuff we work on is hard, right? A lot of the yeah. easy stuff's already been done. Um, if this were easy, you know, they wouldn't need us. <laughs> you, you guys do, right? <laughs> One of the things that, that we're working through um, is understanding ear height. So, you know, you, you shrink the stock of the plant, obviously ear height is about 40%, you know, the, the, Ears are about 40% the height of the total plant, or, or you know, they're about 40% up on the plant. So you reduce that overall plant height, the ear goes down with it. You can have ears that are too short, right? The combine can't pick them up. And so, you know, we're really understanding um, our genetics. There is variation for ear height. So we are working to, to make sure that we deliver commercial products with an appropriate ear height for the region. You know, it won't shrink up, um, you know, maybe in drier, drier conditions, et cetera. But that is one thing that we're paying very close attention to and making sure that we launch commercial products that if they stand, that's great. But if you can't harvest them, that doesn't work either. <laughs> so make, making real sure that that, that works. Yep. So I have a question. I don't know if this mm-hmm. is a fair question, but a lot of our listeners are consumers once again, and they don't typically understand like the scope of the effort that goes into developing technology like this. Do you have a sense of, you know, Jason and I, for instance, have been researching this product in Illinois or the short statured corn in Illinois here for what, three years now. Um, Do you have any idea, like, I don't know, a monetary scope or a footprint scope, or I guess a way to describe the amount of work that goes into bringing a product like this to market? Yeah, sure. Um, So this one's uh, somewhat unique because we have uh, an effort and a project working on a native trait, so a breeding approach to deliver short stature corn. Here in the U.S., that should hit really a a pretty small number of growers just to start partnering um, and developing the system in 2023 um, with subsequent broader rollout in 24 and beyond. And, and so that's that's the breeding native trait, which is likely the one that, that you guys have, have seen and been working with. Our breeding footprint 
basically mimics the the entire growing region in the U.S. So we're testing short corn. You know, you mentioned here in Illinois, we're testing it in Iowa, Nebraska, Indiana, Ohio. I mean, name a state that grows corn and we're testing short corn there. That's pretty exciting. You know, we're really understanding how do we push it? You know, how do we break it? What works, what doesn't? And how do we release commercial products that fit, you know, in the right region for the right grower at the right time? The second technology that we're, we're working on is actually a biotech, a GMO technology. Um, we think actually that this is gonna be more stable and, and work in a broader set of germplasm. So that's a little bit further off, you know, with, with GMO technology, we have to go through rigorous safety assessments. Um, you know, we have to get deregulation and import approval um, in various world regions. And so that takes obviously a little bit more time. Right now, um, we're looking at a launch of that technology really more towards, you know, the end of this decade. We are also looking at delivering or looking at um, how we can deliver this technology through gene editing. And that's really early. So that's still back in discovery. We've had some early POC success, but still working on, on getting that right and, and seeing what we can do with the gene editing technology. So I've mentioned our, our testing in the US. Um, one of the things that's really cool about working at Bayer is our global footprint. So we sell corn. Um, and in fact, therefore have testing in corn um, you know, in the US, in um, South America, in um, Europe, and then in the Asia Pacific region. What's kind of fun about that is that all these different world regions have different value drivers that they think about um, in corn in general, but then can be applied to short corn. One of the pieces I wanna highlight um, that's been kind of fun with the global collaboration is that silage. So silage is really important in terms of a value driver in the Europe, um, you know, in different, different countries in Europe. While there is definitely silage in the US, it's not a main value driver that we tend to think about. Um, so the, the European team uh, has been working with short corn and they've done a lot of tests with, um, you know, on silage quality. And it looks like actually short corn has much improved silage quality. So now that's actually something that we've begun testing in the U.S. and other world regions. And it does look to be bearing out. It's a function of the technology. It's not just a, you know, a Europe, a Europe thing. Um, you know, so that's, that's actually been a really fun and innovative and diverse, you know, set of viewpoints and thinking through, you know, what, what, what are the possibilities with short corn? So it sounds like that was kind of an unexpected side benefit a better silage quality mm -hmm. what is the driver behind that do you think or do we understand that at this point it really just looks like it's a matter of proportions so and i'm certainly not a silage expert but um i mean as i understand it you can cut silage a little bit um higher on the stock so your biomass to ear ratio um okay. you know um, kind of shifts and you actually get better quality it looks like that's happening naturally with short corn so because the, the leaves are so close together, you know, when you cut it, you're actually not getting as much leaf biomass in the ultimate silage sample. Well, Kelly, this is a really exciting new technology. Based on your, what you told us about your role at the beginning of the interview, I assume this is not the only project that you're working on. What else is That's there correct. about the future that is exciting to you? I actually find the future of agriculture really exciting. Yeah, you mentioned my my role. So, you know, I tend to think about technologies that are 5, 10, you know, 15 years down the pike from being commercialized. So one of the things that I'm really excited is our precision breeding, our, our shift to precision breeding. Throughout the past decade or five years, we've made this shift from traditional breeding to breeding 3.0. So that's the introduction of molecular markers and using a little bit of data science to begin to predict what we otherwise would have had to have test in the field. 
we're completely shifting that from a select the best to a design the best, that we know more about the genetics and not only just the genetics, but how the genetics can predict phenotypes and predict interactions with environments that we are now designing corn genomes and creating that in our Marana um, Center in, in for corn or Puerto Rico for soy, such that we'll be essentially crafting designer genomes and de- designer germplasm for growers here in the next half a decade to decade. Awesome. Yeah, we're also very excited about that. In fact, you just plugged another previous podcast episode for us. Um, cool. So yeah. If a listeners, interested- it's good when we all sound like we're, t- we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Together. <laughs> exactly. If a listener's interested in breeding 3.0, we did a podcast with Tom jury, uh, episode 38. So check. The- oh, awesome. We'll link to that. In the Tom's show. Tom's cool. Yeah, for sure. And if you really want to dig into it, you can even go back farther. We had a three-episode series on the history of plant breeding. So if you really want to hear the past and into the future, I recommend that you go back and listen to that. So thanks for giving us the opportunity to plug some of our episodes. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> right, for sure. I mean, actually tying the precision breeding story, I don't know if you've had anyone, maybe this is another one, um, on the podcast talking about editing. Um and so we're, we're really early in our, edit, our journey in, in discovering what the um, genome editing technology can deliver. But I think it's, it's really at this intersection of breeding and biotechnology. So in order to edit, you have to have a precise understanding of the genetics of the crop, right? So you need to know, you need to know what change you want to make. Um, and so, you know, you can either then design the genome through breeding, right, by making all the crosses and, and getting all the different genes lined up you know, through successive generations of crossing, or you can go in and just edit it directly and basically skip all those years of, of crossing to get the right gene and the right allele in the right place. So I think that to me is another place that I'm really excited to see begin to, to mature and, and, you know, really leverage all the different technology options we have just to, you know, is it GMO? Is it breeding? Is it a biologic? It's like, no, we're using the best tool that we have because we have a broad understanding of how all these things work. Um, and I think that to me is, is a pretty exciting future. And those kind of tools really allow a company to address challenges that come up a lot faster because if mm-hmm. traditionally, if you know, a new disease comes into an area, you have to first identify a resistance if there is resistance somewhere, and then you have to back cross that into your existing germplasm that works in yep. that area, a process which can take a decade. I mean, you can have devastation time from a disease. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I think that's our challenge too, you know, at at Bayer is, I think from an R&D standpoint, we're used to things taking 10 years. And so I think how do we, you know, we're we're really working on how do we become a more agile R&D organization? How do we, you know, make decisions faster? How do we get things to market faster? I mean, how do we work with, you know, I've mentioned regulations and, and deregulating traits. Um, you know, there's a little bit of uncertainty around what that looks like for editing in the future. You know, all of these things impact our ability to respond, you know, to, to grow our needs as fast as possible. Absolutely. The future is bright. Kelly, it's been a great conversation. We appreciate your time here uh, this afternoon to chat with us about short corn. Is there anywhere our listeners can go to learn more about you or some of the stuff that you're working on? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn uh, and Twitter. Um, Twitter, KM Gillespie, um, just all one, one word, uh, Kelly Gillespie on LinkedIn. Um, there's a couple of us, but I'm the only one at Bayer. Um, 
And then actually there's, there's a really cool future of farming dialogue uh, that Bayer, basically a panel um, discussion that Bayer did, uh, you know, a, a little bit ago on short corn particularly. So I'm on that one as well. So there might be a little bit more detail on, on that panel discussion if you're interested in more. Great. Thanks so much for your time, Kelly. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Have a good rest of your day. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.